Living without fear. That's the focus of our messages we've been on last week and this week both. We're still in our No Greater Love series looking at some of the aspects of God's love. Last Sunday we explored 1 John 4.18 which says that there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear. And we talked about perfect love and how his love is perfected in us. And so today we're going to walk through part two of this idea that we can live without fear when we live in his perfect love. We also touched on the fact that there's a healthy and constructive fear that we should all have. And that, of course, is the fear of the Lord. And so just to finish up that thought from last week before we move on, I'd like to briefly look at a portion of the conversation between Job and God. This is one of the clearest examples of the need and even the expectation that God has for us in maintaining a proper fear of Him. And remember, we're not talking about the dread or terror kind of fear that drags us into depression. You know, the fear that stalks our emotions and, and preys on our minds when we, when we dwell on them. We're talking about this awestruck wonder, the, the reverence and complete submission of our minds and our emotions and our hearts and our bodies to Him through a healthy fear which comes with an understanding about who He really is. So let's turn in your Bibles uh, to Job chapter 38. And we'll start right from verse 1. I, I know that most of you are probably very familiar with this story, but the depth of these passages, the intensity and the profound nature of the, this extended statement that God makes to Job here in the form of some really intense questioning puts into perspective our relationship to God in terms of who He is and who we are in the big scheme of things. Okay, And it directly relates to the fear that we should all have when we consider the Lord. Keep in mind in this narrative, in this story, that Job has had nearly everything that is dear to him taken away. And in this culture, which was holistic instead of um, Hellenistic, the Hellenistic culture of the Greeks, his culture was holistic. Nothing in their view happened apart from God's sovereign hand. Okay, Everything, every circumstance, every occurrence, every situation was viewed as, as part and parcel with the workings of God in every aspect of life, and rightly so. So that when Job's life came crashing down around him, literally, he recognized that there was a higher power at work and he began to question the motivations of God as probably any of us would given the same circumstances. In fact, Job is described in the beginning of the book as being blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So here's a guy who's living all out for God and out of the blue as far as Job is concerned. His family, his possessions, his stature, his health, all of his wealth, it's all taken away, and he's confronted with utter disaster, okay? And so we end up here at chapter 38, and Job and his friends are all trying to explain, as if they understand the mind of God, why Job is suffering all of this misfortune, as they would describe it. And in the midst of all of their conjecture about the Lord's motives, God speaks, and does he ever... This is God's response to Job's misinterpretation, his conclusions about why God is allowing all of this to happen. Okay, chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this 
that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now, this is the voice of God out of a whirlwind, which in and of itself has to be pretty intimidating. And then God says to Job, dress like a man, dress for action like a man. In other words, put your big boy pants on and let's see what you got. You know, you, you put on your armor, you get ready, dress like a man, and let's see what you think you know. I have to believe at that moment that Job was already shaken in his boots. And who wouldn't be, right? Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? <laughs> or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? <laughs> Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Wow. God's saying, let's go, cowboy. If you think you know so much, let's have it. Show me what you got. And you realize that not only is God asking Job here, if he's done any of this, of course, rhetorically, but he's clearly making a statement to Job that he, the Lord, has in fact done all of this himself, okay? Verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. That would be sarcasm. Have you entered the storehouses of, of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has left, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pilates or the loose the cords of the Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season or can you guide the bear with its children? These are all constellations. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? 
Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? What an unbelievably powerful statement about the sovereignty of God. Job is a literary masterpiece, and we admire it for its poetry and and structure. But if you read what God is saying and all that he's done and who he is, you know, a couple weeks ago we looked at the fact that not even a sparrow falls out of the sky except by God's own sovereign hand. Okay, and here we see that lions don't eat if God doesn't provide their prey. This should give you new understanding for the significance of giving thanks before we eat our meals. That's why we do that. That's turned into a bit of a religious ritual in our culture, but everything that happens in this world, every bit of provision and supply comes from the Lord, even for the animals. So when you see the gazelle running from the lions on Discovery Channel, that didn't happen by chance. The gazelle didn't just randomly happen by a pride of lions. It is God's doing. It is his provision for all the creatures of the earth, even the ravens. Okay, And he's making this point to Job that it is God's prerogative and none other that determines the course of our lives. And we can be complicit and cooperative and get on board with his program, his plan for our lives, or we can rebel against it. Now God goes on for another entire chapter of the same kind of grilling of Job. We won't read it. And after getting just hammered here by God, Job gets a moment to respond. Chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? Listen to this. He says, I lay my hand on my mouth. You know, what have I done? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Okay? Job has gotten the big picture. He realizes his mistake and he acknowledges his place. So what does God do? Well, he lets Job off the hook, right? Eh, wrong. (laughs) Here's God's response, verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Here we go again. Verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me? that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? And then for another two solid chapters, we don't have time to read, God continues to spell this out for Job. And you should read it on your own time, because it is an incredible statement that God makes about who He really is. You want to talk about perspective, okay? And then finally we come to chapter 42, And Job gets a moment to shine, a chance to present his side of the argument. And what does he say? Verse 1, 42 verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore, I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. Now, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I can almost picture Job at this point, you know, down on the ground, about as low as he can get, with a broken heart and a serious attitude adjustment. A reverent, awestruck, terrible, and, and wonderful fear of the awesome, eternal, mighty, powerful, and one true God. This is the fear that we would all do well to understand and recognize in every circumstance, in every situation that we face, at every dawn and every day's end, a keen awareness of the utter sovereignty and absolute power of the God that we serve. Okay? And this text, this conversation between God and Job really points out well the fact that we can believe in God and we believe that we know all about God. You know, we grew up in church and we know all the Bible stories and we've listened to hundreds of sermons. Not as good as this one, but... And we even... That was a joke. And we've even taught Sunday school. But until we see Him for who He really is, until our eye sees who God is, absolutely sovereign and in control, until we have this perspective, this healthy, constructive fear of who He really is living in us, we don't know anything. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7, and that's where, we, that's where we let off with this last week, okay? So again, this is the fear that preserves us. Let's change gears now, and for the rest of our time, we'll talk about the fear that can destroy us. And we really already defined that, that unhealthy fear uh, that we so often lived with last week in our message. We talked about that already, and we talked about how to live without fear. So today, let's take a look at what a life lived without fear looks like, like a snapshot of that, all right? Because living fearlessly is not just about the absence of fear. It is carrying out the will of the Father in the face of those obstacles and challenges that typically cause us to become fearful, all right? So what, what does living fearlessly actually look like? What does it mean to live fearlessly for God? Well, first, it means that we're fearless in our faith, standing firm on God's word. Let's, let's read in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses. This is after the baptism and Holy Spirit anointing of Jesus in chapter 3. Okay, so Matthew 4 verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these 
I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus fasts here for 40 days and 40 nights, which is about as long as the human body can stand to go without food, without causing permanent bodily harm. And then Satan comes and tempts him when he thinks Jesus is at his most vulnerable point, which is a common tactic of the enemy. We have this sort of picture, at least I did most of my life, of this story of Jesus holy and fasting and pressing into God and having this amazing time with the Lord. And then all of a sudden, Satan shows up, this, this sort of hideous adversary. You know, this is, this is the creature that everybody hates. This is ultimate evil embodied. And that's, there's truth in that. But Jesus was there when Satan was created by God. You know that. And for however many lifetimes, centuries, millenniums, how many ages did they spend in heaven together before they fell? There was a relationship there, surely, with Jesus and Satan before he fell. And so, if you think about that, here's Jesus, hungry, thirsty, and his old friend shows up. Now he knows who he is, and he knows what he's done, and he knows this is evil. But it isn't like something he'd never seen before that came in this horrific thing, confronted him. This is an old friend. Hey, man, how you doing? You look hungry. Can I get you something? Isn't that how it works in our lives? It's so rare that the enemy comes against us like this wall of evil. I mean, we know to turn and run from that. It's the little things. It's the little things where he creeps in and it's a comfortable voice that we recognize, that we've heard before. And it says, hey, man, you look hungry. You, you look weak. Can I help you? Let, let me just help out. That is the tactic of the enemy. And an interesting side note here is that Jesus <clears throat> responds to each temptation by quoting from Deuteronomy, which clearly it links his experience to Israel's wandering in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years, and two separate fasts by Moses for 40 days and nights each, which points out, again, the Old Testament foreshadowing of the New Testament and Jesus as the fulfillment of what God was doing in the Old Testament. I know I say it a lot, but it's critical to understand the Old Testament if we're to fully understand the New Testament. Okay, now then. Jesus never faltered in his faith the entire time. The phrase being tempted in Luke... Luke's account of this same event, chapter 4, verse 2, it indicates that Jesus was most likely being tempted throughout the entire 40 days, okay, which just culminated in the temptations outlined in these passages. So there's probably a lot more happening here than we realize. But his faith never falters because he knows the scriptures. He knows the word of God. He understands how to apply them, and he stands firm on what they say. Even when the enemy... Quote scripture back to Jesus. He quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Jesus stands his ground and defends the word of God because he knows that the enemy is misusing the passage. So, so what happens next? After Jesus quotes scripture to sta Satan, standing firm on the word of God, fearless in his faith, what happens? The enemy flees. 
okay? We come under attack all the time in our own lives. The enemy tempts us. He, he tempts us with doubts, doubts about our faith. He tells us we're not good enough to witness to others. We're hypocrites, right? He tells you you'll never get over your struggles. You'll, you'll never overcome this depression. You're always going to be alone. You can't possibly believe that you'll ever accomplish anything good. We listen to all those those voices, sometimes from comfortable places. Things that we're used to, voices we've heard before. But let me tell you something. It is high time that the people of God start taking their cues from Jesus, the author of life, and stop listening to Satan, the author of lies, and begin quoting the truth of God's word right back in the enemy's face. Okay, He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12.2 we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8.37 There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4.4 4. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4.7 Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James 4.8 I don't know what everyone here is going through today, but I know there's a word from God in this book for whatever it is. Okay? He's alive and well, and His Spirit, if you're a follower of Christ, is active in you. In every single aspect of your life, let Job remind you. In those moments of doubt and fear, we only need fear the Lord and listen to His voice and none other. Okay? How do we do that? How do we... We have to uh, understand and know the scriptures just like Christ did. We have to know how to apply them in our lives just as he did. We have to listen for his voice. We have to be able to recognize his voice, which also can come by way of scripture and prayer. But understand, it's not enough to simply read the word we do that a lot. We read the Word like the newspaper. We have to study the Word. We have to meditate on the Word of God. We have to digest the Word. Mary Beth read a Philippians 4, fixing our minds on Him. It's not enough to simply make requests known to God. That's a part of prayer. But it's not the totality of communicating with the Father. We have to listen for His voice. We have to spend significant portions of our lives in His presence seeking Him. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Okay? Fearless in our faith. Standing firm on God's Word. Second, we must be fearless in our commitment. Let's turn to John chapter 2. And we'll read just a few verses. Uh, 13 through 17. We're going to continue to look at Jesus as our example, as we should, right? Okay, John 2, 13 through 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Okay? That last line is a reference to Psalm 69.9, which says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It's another prophetic word in the Old Testament 
fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. And it shows his fearless commitment, even the fierce commitment that Jesus had for the Father and for the church. He was never afraid to stand up and show his passion for the Father and his passion for the church. And I believe that many of us in the church today unfortunately spend more time tearing each other down than we do building each other up. And I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ. Actually, I'm very proud of our church. I don't mean the unhealthy pride. I'm very proud of you because I see so much love in this church and building one another up. But in the church worldwide, there's so much tearing of one another down. My wife and I could have the biggest knockdown, drag out argument of all time. But I'm not going to call up one of my buddies and tear down my wife because we had a disagreement. I fiercely defend my wife because I'm passionate about our relationship. So I protect it and I build it up even when we don't always agree. I said to you before, we may not be perfect, but we're perfect for each other, my wife and I. You know what? We may not be perfect in this church, but we're perfect for each other. God put us all here together. And I know he moves us around sometimes. God shifts people around according to his will. But we're all part of the same body of Christ. Why is it then that sometimes we tear each other down? It's because of insecurity. Which is bred in the dark corners of our fear. We all have insecurities. Those are born out of fear. Okay? We should be fearless in our commitment to the Father and to the church. That's, that's us. Committed to each other. All members of one body, united in service to God. We need each other. Whether we want to admit it or not, sometimes we need to be strong for each other. Sometimes we need to correct each other. Sometimes we just need to love each other. Okay? So the next time the enemy whispers in your ear, you start thinking about calling up a friend and telling them about how that other person hurt you before you share that offense with someone else. Remind the enemy that these are your brothers and sisters in Christ and you're fearlessly committed to them, okay? Let's move on. We're running out of time. And finally, we must be fearless in our sacrifice. Let's read Luke chapter 23. Verses 26 through 46. Luke 23, and we'll start on verse 26. At the end of his ministry as a man on earth, Jesus is being led to commit the ultimate act of sacrifice here. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, and Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs they never bore and the breasts that never, that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be, part, to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, 
if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? That's the key. Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light had failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. You see, even in torture and death, Jesus was thinking about others. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. He was fearless in sacrifice. He gave everything that he had, right? Even his own life. It's easy for us to think, well, yeah, he was Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I can't give the way he gave. Yet there have been countless Christians from the New Testament right up to today who have sacrificed everything for the body of Christ in his name's sake. Christians in the New Testament were being thrown into prison, tortured, stoned, run out of their homes, yet they kept telling people about Christ. In Acts 8, 1 through 4, just after Stephen was killed for his faith, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But listen to verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Fearless they were in sacrifice. Moses, fearless before Pharaoh. Abraham, fearless to offer his own son. Joshua, fearless to raid the land of Canaan. Paul, fearless before many trials and afflictions. Almost all of the apostles were martyred. Peter and Andrew were crucified. Paul was beheaded. Many were tortured first. Okay, what about today? What about in modern times? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was murdered by the Nazis in 1945 for his righteous stand against the Third Reich in defense of the church. Korean pastor Kim and 27 members of his church were killed for refusing to deny their faith in the 1950s. Pastor Romulo's son and three of his congregation were assassinated in 1992 in Peru as they preached the gospel to a dissident group in their country. Pastor Mehdi Dabaj was murdered in 1994 in Iran for translating Christian radio programs into his native language. There are books full of documented cases of Christian martyrs in modern times. Okay? Most people don't want to be martyrs, of course, and not are all, are all called to be physically, but we're all called to sacrifice, to give up our lives, and at times even suffer for one another. We don't think about that as much in our country, and I'm glad that we haven't had to. And I'm not an alarmist, by the way, but I will just tell you, and read the news every morning, 
There are things shifting in our country. There are changes that I've never seen before in my lifetime. And there are actually people now introducing legislation now. We pray that it won't pass. To make certain passages of the Bible considered hate speech and outlawed to be spoken in public. That's happening in our society right now. Now we pray against that. But I'm telling you, persecution may come in our lifetime. We've never experienced that. If, you're, if you've lived in this country your whole life, you may have if you're from somewhere else. The kind of persecution that we see here. The good news is, we have a reference. People say the earth has never seen times like it has today. Oh, yes, it has. <laughs> it was much worse for the Christians in the New Testament than it is for us today. Not in some places of the world, but here. Okay? Matthew chapter 20, a woman asked Jesus to promise her that he will place her two sons next to him in his kingdom, one on the left and one on the right. And Jesus replies, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we're able. <laughs> yeah. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. God is sovereign. What did Jesus mean when he said, you will drink my cup? Anytime you see the word cup, or someone taking the cup, referenced in scripture, it's significant, and you should pay attention. Because it symbolizes the divine destiny of the hearer in every case. It's always about something significant that's going to occur. Psalm 16.5, the cup symbolizes a blessing. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Jeremiah 25, 15, the cup symbolizes disaster. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Psalms 116, 13, the cup symbolizes salvation. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Isaiah 51, 17, the cup symbolizes wrath. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. And in this passage, Matthew chapter 20, the cup that Jesus is referring to is his suffering. He says to his disciples, which is us, by the way, that you will share in my cup. You will share in my suffering. He suffered for us, and we're able to suffer for each other by his grace and with his love and without fear. That means sacrifice. That means giving beyond ourselves. That means witnessing our faith even when it's uncomfortable. It means giving up our desires when they don't line up with his desires for us. And not to go too far down another rabbit trail, but I just want to tell you we've so abused the back half of Psalm 37.4. He will give you the desires of your heart. We've worn that scripture out. That doesn't mean that just because we desire something that he's going to give it to us. Sometimes our hearts desire all kinds of things. Terrible things. Some things that seem good to us, but are not anywhere close to his will for us. We can't skip over the first half of Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because when we delight ourselves in him, he desires, his desires generally become our desires. But even at that, we must always pray, Lord, your will be done, not mine. You see, Jesus didn't desire to be crucified. He asked the Father to take that cup away from him. But he recognized that his will and the Father's may have been two different things at that moment. That isn't always a sin, by the way. 
what we desire and what God desires. That isn't a sin to desire something differently. It's a sin when we act outside of God's will, when we choose to do what we desire instead of what he desires. I'm certain it isn't the gazelle's will to be eaten by the lion. But God in his infinite wisdom knows what's best, doesn't he? Job didn't desire to be tested in the way that he was. I'm, I'm sure it was his desire for something else entirely. And yet God, God's desire was to allow the testing of Job. Why? Because so often what's happening in our lives is so much bigger than we realize. There's a bigger picture that we don't always see, but God certainly does. We needed the benefit of Job's testing thousands of years later for our understanding. Job didn't know that. So when our desires and his will don't line up, we have to trust him in obedience and be willing to sacrifice our own desires, even though it may hurt, even though it may be difficult, even though it may not feel good, because he sees the big picture and we often don't. If the gazelle and all the other prey always got what they desired, the lions would die of hunger. God knows that. The gazelle doesn't, right? We cannot always understand the mind of God, but we must always trust his voice, his word, his truth, regardless of how that makes us feel, okay? It's easy for me to stand up here and tell you that we should suffer for Jesus, be willing to sacrifice for him and for each other. Um, I work at a church. I'm surrounded by Christian people all day long. Even when unbelievers come to the church looking for counsel or some kind of help, there's an expectation that they're going to get Christian advice. They've come to a church. So I have to ask myself, and I do often, when I leave this place and go out into the rest of the world, when I'm in an environment that is nothing like the church, maybe even hostile to the message of Christ, do I shrink back and blend in? Or am I the same out there as I am in here? I've experienced rejection. I'm sure you have too. I've been ridiculed. I've been derided for my faith. It doesn't feel good. But I know it is at times the cup that I must drink from if I'm going to share in the life of Christ. And yet I'll freely admit to you that I've shrunken back at times. I've avoided conversations about faith even when I knew there was an opportunity because sometimes I get weary of the fight. Sometimes I'm afraid. Sometimes I just want to break. But we can't let up when it comes to our faith. We have to represent Christ all of the time, 24-7. That's going to mean rejection at times, ridicule, suffering. That is the cup that we must drink from if we are to carry out His will. Are we willing to sacrifice for one another? Are we willing to sacrifice for the lost? Would this church, would this city look different if we did? Philippians 1.27 through 30 sums it up best. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same kind of conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That isn't a popular message. That probably isn't going to get me a spot on television, but it's challenging. You know, this life, it's sometimes difficult. It's often rewarding. And I'll tell you, it is ultimately fulfilling this fearless life that we're called to live for Christ. 
And how does that relate to his love for us? It is because of his love for us, his perfect love, that we can live without fear, a life expressed confidently, even in the face of danger and struggles of every kind. Because he's always, always, always with us. Surrounding us, protecting us, saving us, and blessing us with abundant life. Billy, that's a word for you. Okay? Psalm 91 says this so beautifully. And we'll close with this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions as are his wings. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. Nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness. Nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. Listen, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Because he who holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You see, his love is greater than all of our fears combined. His love is greater than all of our fears combined. Because of his love, we can live fearlessly, okay? Fearless in our faith, fearless in, in our commitment, and fearless in our sacrifice. That's the life that we're all called to live. And church, I, I want to tell you guys, we started off on the right foot. There's so much more to the vision that God has given us for this church. It's so much more than, than this is awesome, what we do. These services is the highlight of my week. I live for this. But there's so much more that he has for us outside of these walls to, to be about doing. And this is just the genesis of that, okay? It's going to require that we live fearlessly for him. And you know what? One of the greatest ways to do that is when we link arms together, side by side. You're not out there alone. We are a family, the body of Christ. We're a community of faith, and we stand together. And you see what he's going to do through this little upcountry church. Would you bow your heads with me?